The time is now six o'clock. Welcome to WRT's local news for Tuesday, January 16th. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. In tonight's news, the Wisconsin Supreme Court gets a swath of proposals for new legislative district maps. Consultants announce recommended locations for an Amtrak station in Madison. And we talk to a longtime state political observer about predictions for the election year ahead and offer tips for how to find owls in the wild. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Republican Wisconsin Assembly Speaker Robin Voss is slamming new legislative district voting maps proposed by Democrats. Voss called new map proposals from Democrats a, quote, political gerrymander, unquote. That's as the process to select remedial assembly and state Senate voting maps continues in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Last Friday was the deadline for interested parties to submit map proposals. The court received seven sets of maps by that deadline from lawmakers and law firms on both sides of the aisle, along with math professors and redistricting consultants. The new maps would need to be in place by March 15th in order to be adopted for the fall election. Meanwhile, Voss told reporters today that he would also consider an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's what has happened in previous post-census redistricting cycles. We'll have more on the map proposals in a few minutes. It was a busy day for the Wisconsin State Senate. Today, the chamber made a swath of moves, including a vote to fire a utility regulator appointed by Governor Tony Evers. The governor appointed Tyler Hubner to the Public Service Commission in 2020 and again in 2021, reports the Associated Press. Hubner was previously the executive director of the nonprofit renewable energy group Renew Wisconsin. The Associated Press reports that Hubner was fired for certain positions on energy, including working with customers on the ability to pay and loosening the solar energy sector. But the state Senate has the power to reject any of the governor's nominees if they haven't already confirmed the nominee in a vote. Once an unconventional move, this move to essentially fire gubernatorial nominees has been gaining frequency under the divided government of a Republican legislature and Democratic governor. In 2019, the state Senate fired Evers Agricultural Secretary Brad Pfaff. At the time, the Senate had fired a member of the governor's cabinet since the state began keeping track in 1987. Now Pfaff, who is now a state senator representing areas of western Wisconsin, railed against today's vote. He said in part that the move, quote, sends a signal it doesn't matter what your background is, what matters is the political party and who appointed you, unquote, reports the Associated Press. State lawmakers are making strides in a bid to boost electric vehicle infrastructure across Wisconsin. Today, the state Senate passed two Republican-authored bills. The first would allow businesses to set up electric charging stations without the same regulations imposed on public utilities. It also creates a 3% kilowatt-hour excise tax on any electricity sold. State officials estimating the tax could generate nearly $30,000 by fiscal year 2025. The measure is not without controversy, as government entities would not be allowed to operate public charging stations. Instead, they would only be able to run stations to charge publicly owned vehicles. The second bill would allow the Wisconsin Department of Transportation to use nearly $80 million in federal grants to help businesses set up those charging stations over the next five years. The funds would be used to meet federal guidance, which says that electric charging stations should be no more than 50 miles apart. Those grants would cover up 80% of installation costs, reports the Associated Press. 
Both bills passed in the Senate with no debate and now head to the State Assembly. 7-Eleven Incorporated, Quick Trip Incorporated, and Clean Wisconsin, an environmental group, have all registered their support. In other state Senate news, lawmakers voted along party lines in favor of a $3 billion Republican tax cut plan. The bill would reduce Wisconsin's third income tax bracket from just over 5% to 4.5%. It would apply to married Wisconsinites who, filing jointly, make between $36,000 and $405,000 a year. The Republican plan also expands a tax break for retirement income. Married couples aged 67 and older would be able to subtract up to $150,000 in payments from qualified retirement plans from their reportable income. The state Senate took up the bill, which originated originated in the state assembly, even as Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahue has stated he's working on an amended proposal that would expand the bracket to include higher earners. The bill, as it stands, passed 30 to 2. A former strip club on East Washington Avenue is getting new life as a grocery store. Go O Grocery has been in the works for years and had its soft opening over the weekend, reports Madison Magazine. A grand opening is still being planned. The store brings a different slate of items than your typical grocery store, offering West African and Southeast Asian foods and ingredients. The second floor of the store now holds four apartments. It's co-owner by it's co-owned by area lawmaker Samba Baldet, who also represents the neighborhood around Go O. The other co-owner works for the Sun Prairie Area School District. There is some small good news in this week's forecast of negative temperatures. Well, it might feel like hell has frozen over, something else has too. Lake Mendota. The state climatology office made the official announcement yesterday. The freeze-over date comes nearly four weeks after the annual median average. The determination of whether the lake is officially frozen uses some centuries-old technology. Whether you can row a boat from Picnic Point to Maple Bluff, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Those were the headlines, and now on to the rest of today's top stories. Last Friday was the deadline to submit remedial map proposals in response to the Wisconsin Supreme Court's redistricting lawsuit order, and there are now seven proposals on the table. WRT News producer Faye Parks has the details on what's ahead. Late last month, the state Supreme Court ruled 4-3 to three that Wisconsin's voting maps are unconstitutional. In the majority opinion, Justice Jill Karofsky wrote that the current maps feature a striking amount of disconnected territory. With the 2024 election season around the corner, the state Supreme Court has until mid-March to finalize new maps. They ordered both parties in the redistricting lawsuit to submit proposals. And those proposals are in. There are seven in total, including a proposal from the petitioners, a proposal from Governor Tony Evers, and a proposal from the state legislature. Ruth Greenwood is the director of the Election Law Clinic at Harvard Law School and one of the attorneys representing the petitioners, a group of Democratic voters in Wisconsin. She says their proposal follows county, precinct, town, and ward lines, as the court requested. One of the allegations about the previous maps is that they split all of these communities that had historically been put together. And so we started with that, things like putting Beloit in one district, Sheboygan in one district, reuniting Nina and Menasha. So at both the Assembly and the Senate level, we were really just trying to make sure that the districts made sense from a communities of interest perspective. Though the petitioners in the lawsuit are Democratic voters, their proposal is still projected to result in a Republican majority. Right now, the state GOP holds a near supermajority in the Assembly at 64 out of 99 seats. 
under the petitioner's proposed maps, they estimate that state Republicans would instead win 52 out of 99 seats. And in the state Senate, Republicans hold a supermajority at 22 out of 33 seats. Under the petitioner's proposed maps, they estimate that state Republicans would instead win 17 out of 33 seats. And that is partially because of the way that people live in Wisconsin. This is a slight geographical bias towards Republicans. And we've shown that because we've drawn a map that is very respectful of communities and municipal splits and all the rest of it, and, and still has an only slight bias. In comparison, Greenwood says the state legislature's proposal has a much larger bias in favor of the Republican Party. And that simply doesn't need to be the case. The state legislature's proposal prioritizes the least change from the current maps, moving less than 0.1% of Wisconsin voters to new districts. In the brief, attorneys for the legislature say their map still rectifies the original issue before the state Supreme Court. They point out that the non-contiguous districts in the current maps have been eliminated and urge the court to stay out of politics altogether. But Greenwood disagrees. You know, much like saying that being, you know, race blind will, will lead to fair racial outcomes, sometimes you need to be race conscious or in this case party conscious in order to make sure that you're treating people of both parties equally. Parties in the lawsuit have until next Monday to submit response briefs. Then, the map proposals head to the court's redistricting consultants for an evaluation. Those consultants have until February 1st to issue a recommendation or submit their own maps. I feel like I've talked to people all across the state for many, many years about how the maps are rigged in one direction, and I'm really excited to see what democracy looks like when everybody's vote counts equally. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Planning to bring an Amtrak line to Madison is gaining momentum, and now consultants have identified eight potential sites for a train station in the city. These potential locations are located downtown and on the east side. Draft recommendations for where to place the site head to a city meeting tomorrow, marking the first steps in creating a new passenger line linking Madison to Milwaukee and Minneapolis. WORT reporter Willa Polish has more. The eight potential sites for a passenger rail station in Madison range from downtown next to the Monona Terrace to the northeastern quarter of the city near the old Oscar Mayer plant. Those potential station sites are identified in a new preliminary draft prepared by the HNTV, a consultant hired to determine the best location for an Amtrak station. They've been studying the issue and gathering community feedback for over a year. Ever since the federal infrastructure bill in 2021, eyes have been on the open corridor between Wisconsin's two largest cities, and this station is the first step in putting Madison on the passenger rail map. The Amtrak Connects U.S. project would connect Madison to a new passenger line that would reach from Chicago through Madison, Eau Claire, and Minneapolis to Duluth, Minnesota. That line could be fully implemented a little over a decade from now. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway told Wart almost a year ago about how optimistic she was for the project. It started with Amtrak, right? When Amtrak released their most recent plan for building out their network, they included Madison on that map. And that's a really key piece of this. And so now with them saying Madison is on our map, we want to have a station in Madison, we want to come through Madison, I think that's a really key. Today, Alder MGR Govindarajan who represents the UW campus area on the Madison City Council, told WORT there is a growing excitement over the project. That excitement is growing after the city received an additional $50,000 federal planning grant for the project last month. 
more and more, it seems like this is going to be more realistic. This has been a topic of dis- a discussion for over a decade now, but I'm very curious to see how that goes. It's it's good to know that we do have some support from the federal government coming in. I'm sure maybe even the state going forward once things get kicked into high gear. But we'll learn a lot more about that tomorrow, and I'm very excited to learn more. The study looked at five areas across the city, and ultimately, consultants recommend that three corridors move on to a site analysis. Those areas for further study are downtown, First Street, and Oscar Mayer. The consultants recommended against placing a station on the UW-Madison campus, the airport, and other east side locations for a variety of factors, including rail operations, equitable access, and proximity to people, jobs, and destinations. Eight potential building sites within the recommended areas are proposed. Half of the sites are located right on the isthmus by Monona Terrace, Blair Street, Livingston Street, and Baldwin Street. Further out east, there's First Street and Johnson Street, and then up north by the Oscar Mayer plant are the Commercial Avenue and Aberg Avenue sites. Each site's pros and cons are touched on in the study, but were generally evaluated on space availability, distance from major destinations, and how well the area would connect to existing transit, and the potential it could have for economic development. Transportation Director Tom Lynch tells the Wisconsin State Journal that sites downtown have more ridership potential and are closer to popular destinations, but sites farther away from the capital would have better parking options and better access for train maintenance. Govindarajan appeals to the less statistically driven qualities to consider. It might be a lot more tourists than people who are just visiting Madison, and I think it would be really cool if we if they come out of a train station and then the first real thing they see is maybe the capital and what Madison really has to offer, like the walkability, the safety, a very much more different concept than most other cities offer. I think just getting dropped off at the isthmus by the capital area would be really cool as someone new to the city might see for the first time. Alder Marsha Rummel represents the city's east side on the Madison Common Council. Three of the proposed sites are within her district. I know that people really like the idea of a downtown location as a destination and whereas people that live in my district and maybe others you know around the city you know maybe say oh do i have to go downtown and park to kick the train and you know maybe that's the wrong question but that's what i'm hearing or how will the train coming downtown and going out again interrupt the traffic circulation The draft plan heads to the Transportation Commission meeting tomorrow night at 5 p.m. and will be streamed on the Madison City Channel site. The actual design and construction process for the proposed Madison station is scheduled for sometime between 2028 and 2031. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Willow Polish. Just under two weeks ago, two brothers fell into a Sun Prairie retention pond shortly after getting off the school bus. Antoine Amos Jr. and Legend Sims both died within days. Now the community is demanding action to make the area safer for children. Alder Sabrina Madison represents the city's far east side. She recently met with local and state officials to discuss ways to prevent another tragedy. She spoke with WRT News producer Faye Parks earlier today. Thank you for joining me, Alder Madison. Thanks for having me to chat. So for those who didn't hear the tragic news, can you tell us what occurred in Sun Prairie the Friday before last? So unfortunately and tragically, Legend, who is eight years old, and his little brother, Antoine Jr., died by drowning at the retention pond located near their family's apartment, which is Wildwood Apartments in Sun Prairie. And they'd just gotten off the school bus for the weekend, is that right? I can't say exactly where they were dropped off, except that they were dropped off by, you know, the local school bus. 
And so at some point when they got off of that bus, somehow they ended up in that water. So some folks are saying that this tragedy highlights a number of safety concerns. First, that school buses in Sun Prairie can drop children off older than four, even if a parent isn't there to pick them up. Is that something you think the district should address moving forward? Yeah, I think it's an opportunity for all districts across the state, not just here locally, to take a look at their policies and just really look at, you know, how do we improve the safety of kids who, you know, because parents are working. You know, most parents have a traditional nine to five or a second shift job. You know, the child has an older sibling who they were likely walking home from school with on a regular basis. So what can we do to increase the likeliness that kids are safe leaving the school bus and make it in the house? I think all schools should just review their policies and where can you make updates to increase the safety of kids across the state. The second issue is that this particular retention pond does not have a fence or barrier to keep people away. In fact, Sun Prairie does not have an ordinance requiring fencing around the city's bodies of water. You addressed that at a meeting with local and state officials last week. Can you tell us more about that? The goal of that meeting was not only to quickly get a gate up or fence up at the current retention pond where this tragic incident happened, but for the rest of the county to take a look at their similar bodies of water, especially retention ponds that are near kids or where kids are more likely to have access to them and review on what you can do immediately. Does that look like, you know, signage? Does it look like temporary gates? Like what is the solution that we could implement quickly while we look at our long-term processes and planning for these similar sized bodies of water. My intention, even though the fence went up at the Sun Prairie location, my intention is to look at this across the county and the rest of the state. Like I'm thankful, for example, Senator Agar joined that conversation. I absolutely can use her help on this. But there was a child who died tragically, I think it was 2012, who was five years old and autistic. And so this child drowned. And so it would have been great if, you know, there was similar sort of like work being done to protect the retention ponds from kids because kids are explorers. We're all natural explorers at the age. To clarify, this would be state law or potentially city ordinances that would require fencing. Is that yep. right? Yep. So what I'm working to understand is what can we do at the state level? Because if it's something that comes from the state, for example, then they could give the recommendation or the directive to the rest of the state. So I wouldn't have to go, you know, county by county, for example. My hope is that we would get a directive from either the county and or from the state that would just direct all municipalities to, you know, create some more safety around their retention ponds and similar bodies of water, especially where kids will have regular access to them. And so I understand you're just starting this process now, but have you heard any kind of pushback? Are there any people who disagree with this policy? So I try not to get caught up in, in too much of that, but hear what the pushback is. Even though you don't agree, you have some valid thoughts that, you know, can help inform the planning process. But some of the pushback just entirely blames the parent you know, 100% without taking into consideration that kids are moving about our city, you know, on a regular basis without their parents there. For example, there's no way I would have been able to be home every time my son came home from school because I was a working poor mother. You know what I mean? 
Some of the other pushback is that cities, towns, states, or whatever has tons of bodies of water, right? Which I absolutely understand. And so that's why my goal is to say, let's take a look at the bodies of water you do have, for example. And what I've asked the group that we met with most recently, for example, is let's just start where kids have the most access to, especially for kids who are getting dropped off near, you know, from their school buses. So can we start there? That's For me, that makes sense is a good starting point for us. Okay, so it sounds like your next steps are to assess um, the areas of the greatest concern. What are your other next steps? How will you move forward with a policy change? You know, as we're working for solutions around the state level, my goal is to continue to reach out to the different municipalities and here in Dane County because, you know, that's where I can can get the quickest access. And encouraging community members to speak at those local common council meetings, send letters to their elected officials, because we all know sometimes it takes a long time to have some sort of action. But, you know, like some prairie got that gate up, I believe, on Friday, for example. So we do, you know, if we work together, we can have some sort of action happen. It can't just be a few of us. It has to be folks, you know, sharing their concerns from across the area, across the state on what they want. And I do want to say, thankfully, when I put a call out for folks to, you know, email and, and reach out to their some prairie elected officials, people did that. They joined the Public Works Committee with me and spoke out. They sent in emails to speak out. And I will say the some prairie officials pretty quickly listened to us. You know, no matter what their thoughts may or may not be about it, I will say that they listened to their residents and the residents who sent in, you know, the Dane County residents who live in bordering districts. So they took those concerns and listened and got that So you mentioned the challenges earlier associated with being a working parent. I believe since the the tragic drowning that happened, you've been supporting the boys' family at the Progress Center for Black Women. Can you tell us a bit more about your nonprofit and the services you provide? So we started working with Kiana, who is the mother of legend Antoine Jr., over a year ago. We've been working with them. This is a family we also met because they were residing in the Meadowlands, and there were some challenges over there that we were helping them sort through. And so the nonprofit that I founded, the Progress Center for Black Women, we centered Black women and their families around financial health, professional development, career-related goals, and we have a program called Under One Roof, which provides advocacy and just wraparound support. So if you're you're coming to us for entrepreneurship or you're just coming for photos with Santa, for example, and we find that there's some other supports we can assist you with, we sort of want to wrap you around, you know, our services, which is under one roof. So that's how we met Kiana, by providing wraparound support and under one roof. So I do want to say some of the pushback, or not a whole lot, but I did get an email and maybe a comment and someone told me just it sounded like they didn't want me to be concerned with some prayer, and I should just keep my concern with City of Madison, for example, without realizing that I've always, before I was older, I've always concerned myself with especially Black women from across the county. And Kiana just happens to be one of those families where just because she no longer lives in Madison, we wouldn't just say, you don't live in Madison, we're not going to help you anymore, because we consistently help folks outside of Madison. And even in my elected position, it's important for us to collaborate and work with our partners in other cities and towns because people crisscross, you know, you know, just because you live in Madison or Fitchburg or South Prairie doesn't mean that we can't support you or help you, you know. It shouldn't be that way. No one should want us to only be concerned with one specific area of the county. Okay, I believe that covers all of my questions, but is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? The biggest thing is for us to think holistically about what it means to offer community care. So community care sometimes looks like responding to a tragedy by putting up a fence 
so no other child enters that water. And so instead of thinking about, you know, where were the parents, you know, um, think about how this tragedy has happened in our community and how do we prevent other kids from having the same outcome? Because, there, again, there's no way that working parents can be with their kids 100% of the day. It is unrealistic. With the cost of child care, it's just not, it's not a realistic thing. You know, oftentimes they can barely afford child care, and it is an older sibling who may be, you know, walking home with a kid. So instead of us being caught up on where were the parents, let's be caught up more so in how do we offer community care to this family, but more, you know, let's ensure that we do our best to not allow this to happen in either of our cities. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Alder Madison. Thank you for asking. That was Alder Sabrina Madison of the Far East Side. She recently met with local and state officials to discuss safety measures that would keep children away from retention ponds. That's after, earlier this month, two brothers fell into a pond in Sun Prairie and tragically died within days of each other. Alder Madison says she'll continue to push for change on the local, county, and even state levels. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Charlie Sykes is a longtime conservative pundit in Wisconsin and now editor-in-chief of The Bulwark, a news organization that seeks to defend liberal democracy. Speaking to WORT's Andy Moore last week, Sykes shared his political predictions for the election season ahead. We want to welcome back uh, the one and only Charlie Sykes to the Friday Buzz. Charlie, a good morning on this snow day morning. I'm sorry for the choppy intro. Happy Friday. I know our listeners are going to feel a little bit cheated if, if we don't do one of our, our regular segments. Let's just do that right away. We, we call it a, a lightning round. And so here, here's a quick lightning round. I'll mention a name or a political reference, and you yeah. give us 10 seconds on the topic. Are you ready? Okay. Sure. Chris Christie dropping out of the presidential primary. Uh, I think he was, for all of his flaws, he was a magnificent beast in this campaign, and I'm disappointed that he's out. Okay. Uh, Wisconsin Assembly Speaker Robin Voss as a target of a recall. Well, this is what you get when you try to raise the baby alligator in the bathtub and you imagine that it won't grow up to be a big alligator who <laughs> will try to eat you. <laughs> March deadline for new district maps in Wisconsin. Um, a, a, bit, a bit quick. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll get to yeah. It, 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 it seems completely uh, impossible uh, in my mind, but we'll we'll see. We'll get to yeah. uh, your specific twenty twenty four political predictions later in our conversation. Uh, but just to set the table on a scale from one to ten, where one is a complete return to sanity as we used to understand it in our democracy, and ten is we're all f apostrophed edd. What's our number for twenty twenty four? Oh, you don't want to hear this on a snow day, do you? Yes. Um, because, because I'm going to give you a nine oh. on all of this. And, oh. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm actually working on a piece, you know, sort of the, you know, we have to pace ourselves because this is not going to end anytime soon. The fever is not going to break. I think we're going to have a hangover from what's going on right now for, who I, w- I want to say 30 years, but uh, I, don't, I don't want to depress you too much on a Friday, so for at least a decade. Well, and I imagine uh, your specific predictions later in our conversation will, will, will give us uh, more insight into that hangover. Um, it, it, who died and made Iowa king uh, anyway? How, how do you explain the Iowa caucus process, Charlie? Uh, 
I, it must have something to do with corn, um, but I'm <laughs> but I'm not sure. I remember, uh, you know, former Milwaukee Mayor John Norquist said that that uh, that you know Wisconsin um, without Milwaukee would be Iowa, which I think pretty much explains <laughs> it. You know, um, and and this is this is one of those things that we every four years we convince ourselves that Iowa is really really important, despite the fact that every four years we find out that. Iowa, despite all of the heavy breathing and the money spent, really doesn't make that much of a difference. Is it just because they're on the so-called starting line and, and where everybody's all jazzed up for for, yeah. for something physical to happen? I, 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 I guess. You know, I mean, this is maybe it's the cure for our boredom. We have to start somewhere. It used to be New Hampshire, <laughs> and now and now it's, it's Iowa in the. And the, you know, 28 people who are going to come out in the middle of the polar vortex and blizzard to, you know, to, to stand in some, you know, badly lit, you know, bar basement and vote. So this is American <laughs> democracy. <laughs> okay, well, what do you think will be the morning after headline of the Iowa caucuses? Well, look, I mean, Don, spoiler alert here, Donald Trump is going to win. Um, but the way things work is that it, it's a question of expectation, the expectations game. Uh, does he win by as much as expected? And of course, who finishes second? So one of the big headlines will be if Nikki Haley finishes second, even if she's 30 points behind, that's going to be a headline because it will probably mean that Ron DeSantis's pathetic campaign will come to an end. Mm -hmm. So it might, so the, the, the headline might be Trump romps Nikki second, DeSantis out. Huh. And then New Hampshire, in terms of attention uh, this week given to Nikki Haley's rising poll numbers there, but she's still 20 points behind Trump there, is she not? New Hampshire is this weird beast that, that, all, that has the capacity to surprise us and has done so so many times. So I would not be shocked if Nikki Haley finishes a strong second. It would, of course, stun everybody, you know, and, and, and you know, send the pun hundred world's hair on fire if she were in fact to win. But deep breath here, um, we're headed toward Trump's firewalls. And it's sort of like, I know that people are waiting for the Nikki Haley unicorn uh, to come along. But um, even, even if she wins in New Hampshire, there'll be, you know, one week of, you know, real excitement. And then she's going to, then reality will reassert itself in places like her home state of South Carolina and Nevada. It kind of goes back to our preoccupation with Iowa meaning anything. We're just looking for anything to have any meaning, aren't we? Yes, we, we, we are. And this is, this is part of the, and a part of the problem, of course, is that we get caught up in this, this horse race analysis, just, you know, focused on all the minutiae of everything that's going on in the horse race. When in fact, um, you know, pull back and, and, and look at look at sort of the big picture. I mean, it is going to be Donald Trump for the first time in American history. We are going to have somebody facing 91 criminal charges who will be on the general election ballot. And that's kind of a big deal. But we have to distract ourselves because, of course, we have a 24-7 news cycle and we have lots of pundits who need to pundit on a regular basis, by the way, including me. My <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, horse race uh, coverage, it seems like, is all we have left. And you and I have talked about this in the past. And when you take away actual issue discussion, when you take away where people stand on policies and why, when you take away vision for uh, the, 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 the future in concrete terms, when you take all of those things out of the discussion, it, you're left with horse race and polls, are you not? Well, you are. You know, if um, you know if, if if you can't pull back the lens. Um, so um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm finishing up my daily newsletter, speaking of daily punditry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it's about a conversation that I had with a good friend of mine, um, Ben Wittes from the Brookings Institution. And we were having this sort of conversation about how we go through the horse races that everything is normal. When in fact, all around us, we're living in a Eugene, you know, Ionesco play, rhinoceroses, <laughs> where people are transforming themselves into rhinoceroses. And it's like, this is why you feel you have crazy pills, because you're looking across the table and saying, hey, Fred has a freaking horn on his face. We I mean, oh. Ionesco was writing about oh. this, the slow drift into fascism communism, but it, but, and it's supposedly an absurd display, but I, I feel that it's prophetic now, <laughs> because on a daily basis, you open up the paper and you go, okay, this senator, this congressman, this governor says, hey, you know, despite all the craziness, I'm supporting Donald Trump. And you go, another freaking rhinoceros. <laughs> I'm never going to think of the word rhino in the same way again when I hear that uh, in a political conversation anyway. Uh, but but let's just get this on the record and then and then put it in the rearview mirror. A quick poll gut check. Do we care about polls or not, Charlie? Well, we care too much about polls. I mean, we need to pay attention to them, but we cannot obsess about them any more than you want to spend your time, you know, for example, hooked up to a heart rate monitor and looking at every single blip on your heart rate. You drive yourself insane um, <laughs> as we are doing a pace um, in, in American politics. If you're just joining us um, on this note, I'm talking with the editor in chief of The Bulwark, Charlie Sykes, thebulwark.com to read his columns and uh, his, his, his staff's work. It's, it's a, it's a terrific point of, uh, of, of reference. He's on the phone from Milwaukee. You wrote this week about um, some escalation in rhetoric from Trump so that elevator can go any higher. But, but you paid special attention to him throwing around the word bedlam and one Wisconsin Supreme Court justice response to violent overtures among MAGAs. Talk about that. Well, yes, yeah, so that was uh, the quote from Jill Karofsky, uh in the Washington Post, who's basically saying, look, um, this is not theoretical anymore. Uh, we have, we have the, the former president, you know, with very, very thinly veiled threats of, of violence. Um, if, in fact, you know, he is, you know, the criminal justice system, you know, continues uh, on, on, on its way. And when I say this is not theoretical, I mean, after January 6th, you know, what, what you know, how delusional do we have to be? not to understand what Trump is doing and what the and what the nature of the threat is. And so this is what's this is what makes me think about the rhinoceroses, because, I mean, just in this last week, you know, he's he's ranting about magnets and water. He's talking about how he would have done a better job than Lincoln in the Civil War. He's calling the Capitol rioters who attacked police officers uh, hostages. uh, And he's making it absolutely clear that, uh, you know, a Trump 2.0 presidency would be about retribution and revenge. And the Republican Party is looking at him and going, yeah, he's our guy. He, he's, the, he's the guy that we want to put back in the Oval Office. Um, and, and this is where the horse race misses the point. It's like, guys, do you understand what Trump is saying and the way he is trying to delegitimize, discredit the entire uh, judicial system in the country and the way that he is using the threat of violence to intimidate his foes. There are words 
uh, you know, to describe that, and and they generally begin with F. Well, not all the Republicans are saying that's uh, that's no. okay. Some are actually we're calling to to tap the brakes. Uh, also, in the bulwark this week, it got a lot of national attention. A letter from a fairly large group of former Republican yeah. members of Congress urging the courts to move quickly to resolve Trump cases. Um, how did they frame that argument? Well, first of all, the key word there is former. Um, because what's been happening has been the the the, the exile um, and the excommunication of of Republicans who actually have some sort of a principle who look at Donald Trump and say, you know, this is you know he is unfit for office, and you know all of them are now out of office. And what they're saying is, look, this is an urgent crisis. Um, the courts need to step up. We cannot go into November with this big question mark over over Donald Trump's status. I mean, that, you know, almost every scenario is a scenario of chaos, but the courts have an obligation to tell us, number one, whether he uh, is eligible to, to be on the ballot, uh, and number two, whether or not he, presidents and ex-presidents, in fact, do have absolute immunity or immunity uh, to commit the kind of crimes that Donald Trump committed. You know, I think hearing those former, as you emphasize, voices make um, arguments of that sort has an impact on on reasonably thinking Americans, um, the, the, the diminishing number of them, it seems. But what do you think the impact has in private moments for, for members of the nation's high court who, who stumble upon uh, that news item? Well, um, you know, I mean, obviously they understand uh, the significance of this decision they have to make. I happen to be one of those uh, who is skeptical that the court will want to take a radical, bold step on all of this, courts generally do not want. I mean, in, in terms of, in terms of how toxic or radioactive our politics uh, has has become, the court doesn't want to insert itself directly into the center of that. So, I don't think that the court. I mean, the court has to be really concerned about this. I think they need to understand the immediacy of this. And my guess is that they want to scrape this off their shoes as quickly as possible. Charlie Sykes is the editor-in-chief of The Bulwark, thebulwark.com, and an expert in the work of INESCO. Um, Charlie, uh, the time has come for Charlie Sykes' uh, political predictions of 2024. Jim Wilson, our engineer without peer, plays a very important role in this transition. That's because we have the intro music ready for Charlie Sykes' political predictions of 2024. Hit it, Jim! Okay, Charlie, high production value on the Friday buzz, huh? Wonderful. Fantastic. I, I knew you would appreciate it. Okay, uh, Sykes' 2024 political prediction number one. Number one, um, that uh, Donald Trump is going to romp. He will be the Republican nominee. Um, and um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he might be wearing an ankle bracelet when he accepts the nomination <laughs> here in Milwaukee. <laughs> Oh, man. You know, I forgot all about the Milwaukee role in this, too. Oh, God, it's going to be a long year. Um, Milwaukee's, oh, God, forgot about yeah. that. Okay. Um, yeah, the bar scene's going to be hopping, and it's, you know, oh we're going to be, we become Nagatown for a week. Oh, God. God, yes, I, uh, not going to be going you, downtown that you, week. You, you, you said you at the top of this conversation. You said that you were going to try not to be depressing, and then you bring up the Republican <laughs> convention in Milwaukee. God, oh, I can't unsee that. Um, all right, well, we'll just take that as it comes. Okay, Charlie Sykes's political prediction for twenty twenty four number two. Number two is that even though Donald Trump is going to look like a dominating figure when he comes out of the Republican primaries, 
he is not going to be elected president again because the American people have not lost their mind. Wow. Well, that makes up for the convention being in Milwaukee. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. Um, I, I'm look. I'll, I, I'm already looking forward to playing these predictions back on, uh, uh, in, in a year. Um, and uh, Charlie Sykes' political prediction for 2024, number three. Uh, Robin Voss will retire from uh, the speakership of the assembly and from the assembly altogether. Oh, wow. And we touched on that just a little bit earlier. That's a juicy one. Um, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I, I think he's been thinking about it for some time. And, you know, um, you can just sense that his frustration with what's happened to uh, his caucus uh, is rising, what's happened to the Republican Party. Uh, and, and of course, uh, you know, he brought so much of it on himself by trying to appease the MAGA base. And like so many other um, mainstream Republicans, what he's discovered is you, you cannot you cannot appease these folks. There's there's you, you cannot be crazy enough. You cannot be extreme enough. They will come and they will try to eat your face. <laughs> uh, that's a real rich, mixed bag of predictions. Charlie Sykes, yeah. thanks as always for coming on the Friday Buzz and Happy New Year to you. Yes. What makes you think it's going to be happy? <laughs> Not talking to you. <laughs> God, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide under my bed starting Monday. Um, thanks a lot. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Right, okay. right, Charlie Sykes is the editor-in-chief of The Bulwark, thebulwark.com. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to live local news on WORT. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, Jackie Sandberg hits the woods to explore the different ways that owls avoid being seen. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I wanted to talk about owls and their adaptations, but also kind of talk a little bit more about how they blend in, because we had the coolest release in the last couple of weeks here with a little eastern screech owl, which are one of the smallest diminutive owls here in the state of Wisconsin that we work with very regularly at the Wildlife Center. So eastern screech owls are birds that are in different types of plumage patterns and morphological colors. So we have the gray screech owl, we have the red morph screech owl, and we also have one that's called like a brown morph, which is an intermix between gray and red. And we just so happened to have this little screech owl that was admitted um, after it had been found down on the ground. Uh, it had actually been hit by a vehicle and it was over on kind of the northeast side of the Madison area and it was observed hit by car. So the poor thing had been on the side of the road, really small, and it had sustained some ocular trauma and we rehabilitated it over the course of a full month and we were able to release it. Now on the release day, we had a number of folks that joined us from the community as part of our director's council at the Humane Society and they uh, got to see this owl fly off in to the woods really close by to where he was originally found, hopefully within his territory. 
But someone had commented on how well he blended into the natural environment. And I was like, yeah, you're, you're, I mean, yes, you're right. And when you think of owls, we think, you know, how many times do you really see an owl like in your backyard or do you see an owl just hanging around? Not very often, right? I mean, you might hear them hooting and making their noises, especially in the upcoming breeding season here, which is like right now. But a lot of times we hear the owls, but we don't necessarily see them. And what we're hearing is their hoots. So we're not necessarily hearing anything else, right? Well, they have a lot of different cool adaptations to make them be super cryptic and hard to find. And that's on purpose because they're very stealthy hunters. They're predators here eating things like small mice or voles, especially, although great horned owls, one of the you know more advantageous Owls will eat a lot of other things, including snakes and skunks, believe it or not. But if we're talking about a little eastern screech owl, they might be eating tiny little mice or even earthworms and things, which is pretty neat in itself. But they are very small. They've got a mottled coloration to their feathers, right? So it's going to be a mixture of like that gray, but also with a lot of white spotting. So dark gray shades, light gray shades, and then uh, occasionally brown. And brown and either red can really mix into some nice fall colors. So if you're looking around in a tree, if you've got a tree with bark that's very lumpy or has um, a lot of texture to it, and sometimes even trees with a lot of color in it, meaning like different types of browns and whites and, you know, think of a birch tree having white and black, although that's a pretty easy one, I think, to see the contrast of an owl sitting in it. The uh, trees that have more of the brownish vegetation and brownish bark would be great camouflage for something like an eastern screech owl. And they really enjoy some of the larger, uh, harder, you know, think of the oak trees, uh, deciduous and coniferous trees. So a lot of times it might be in some of the, you know, larger pines, but a lot of our small owl species are cavity nesters, and so they're going to be finding small holes in the trees, uh, sometimes already made by woodpeckers, like pileated, or would find a natural cavity to live in and to nest in. And if they're just going to poke their little heads out and that's all you see, all you're going to see is some brown and white modeling. And they actually, during the day, tend to keep their eyes closed because either they're snoozing and taking a nap or they don't want anyone to see those beautiful eyes and you know depending on the color it can be really really bright so i think of something like a great gray owl who's like all gray and just gorgeous but bright bright yellow eyes if you were to see that bird up close you would notice the eyes and that could beeline something else like a predator into a bird like that and so for a little screech owl they're pretty small and they don't have that bright of eyes but it's something to consider because even the shiny reflection of the eyes could be something that another predator could see if they watched that bird from the right angle. So a lot of times we'll see owls just kind of sitting very quietly, very still, because it's kind of like playing dead if you're a possum, because you don't want to alert anything to your attention. They'll sit with their ear tufts up and their little ear tufts. Yes, screech owls have ear tufts, just like great horned owls. They have little horns on the top of their heads that are actually just feathers. And those are actually helpful in camouflage and disguise because they look like little, you know, branches or leaves that are coming up off the top of their heads. And so if you think it's a small twig or a leaf blowing in the wind, it looks really similar to the vegetation that you're sitting in. And so I think screech owls sitting there with their eyes closed, not moving, ears up. And in a tree hollow or alongside a tree in a branch, you're not going to see that bird. So you might hear it at night, but you're not going to see it probably during the day unless it flies off or if it moves. 
So I think it's really amazing how that type of adaptation has really helped owls just to be very extra stealthy and to survive in areas where a tiny little screech owl is only like six inches high. So how do you compete with all the other owls like a giant great horned or a barred owl? Well, you do it by staying quiet and you try to be not noticed. And other owl species in Wisconsin do similar things like our short-eared and long-eared owls. They also like to kind of hide and are very, very cryptic. But I would say a majority of your owls, not the giant, big, charismatic ones, but most of them are going to try to stay hidden. Another really cool adaptation I just thought I would mention um, is also that these birds have the most silent flight. It is just incredible to hear the flapping and the difference when we have birds in rehabilitation that have had, you know, some sort of damage to a wing or to feathers. You can actually visibly uh, see some asymmetry in the feathers if there's some missing or broken, but you can also hear it when they're flapping. When you hear an owl that has no wing injuries or no feather damage, it's actually the opposite. You can hear almost nothing. And that is probably the most amazing adaptation from owls because they can hunt their prey that way by listening with their big ears on their sides of their heads and then by silently fluttering down without making a sound and catching and striking their prey. So they camouflage, they can hear really well, they uh, definitely have the ability to have silent flight. Uh, they are just amazing predators and really cool birds here in the state of Wisconsin. And I feel lucky that we were able to rehabilitate this one eastern screech owl, but we also get hundreds of raptors every year to our center. And so it's not the only one, but it is a really cool one that I thought was very fun to share. So thanks for listening here on our weekly segment on WORT. If you have any questions about any animals that you see, sick, injured, or orphaned, give us a call at 608-287-3235. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter was Willow Polish. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg and Andy Moore. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Faye Parks produces newscast. And Shelly Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe wherever you keep up with your favorite podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Inuesho Patio. Good night.